that I dealt a little bit with some anger issues this past Christmas. Um, if you happen to work for the toy industry, or in particular if you work uh, in packaging for said toys, uh, this is more directed at you, but I have a feeling a lot of you will be able to relate. Uh, Emma and I were in Louisville visiting family uh, for Christmas, and with every present that Emma received, the more angry I became because I knew with every gift she received, I was going to have to open this gift. And if you've opened a child's toy in the past several years, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, Barbie was uh, entrapped, for lack of a better word, in plastic, in uh, twist ties, in zip ties, in tape. And for some reason, even her hair was woven into the packaging somehow. Um, So much so that... uh, I had to resort to cutting some of Barbie's hair, which only resulted in many tears. So, um, it, was, it was rough. The struggle was real. And uh, I just want to say, if you, if you do work for the toy industry, I would love to t- chat afterward, because um, I have some choice words. But I just need to get that off my chest before we start, because it is a new year. And new years tend to bring about renewed hope and expectation, and fresh starts, and anticipation, and one of our favorites, resolutions, right? And so, I know I'm personally, I am anxious to see what God has in store for ZPC in 2016. I'm, I'm truly and genuinely excited. My prayer most recently has been that we as a family, and as God's church, that we would look forward with hope, and that we as a family, and as God's church, would Look for God and join with him wherever he's moving amongst us. So happy 2016, ZPC. It's going to be a good year. Now this morning we're going to wrap up our current series, The Songs of Christmas. And we started that back at the end of November. And we're going to um, launch into a whole new series next week on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So this week we're going to close out Songs of Christmas and we're going to look at a baby. And we're going to look at some kings and some awkward gifts So if you have your Bible or your phone, you can follow along there. The words will be on the screen as well. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream 
not to go back to Herod. They returned to their country by another route. I particularly enjoy Saturday mornings. Anybody else Saturday mornings? Yeah. I particularly enjoy Saturday mornings. One thing, thing I enjoy on Saturday mornings, whether I am um, doing stuff around the house or in the summertime if I'm out in the yard or if I'm in my garage working on my 97 Jeep Cherokee that I'm trying to keep alive, I, I, one thing I particularly enjoy doing is listening to the radio. And this is my, my grandfather's radio. And I have fond members, memories of my grandfather working in his garage, working on his 1967 Mustang. And so I particularly enjoy listening to the radio on Saturday mornings, in particular, WFYI. Saturday morning, you have weekend edition, so they kind of get caught up on the week's news. And then you move into Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is kind of NPR's radio game show, which is hilarious. And then you move into one of my all-time favorites, which is Car Talk, which is basically some guys sitting around having fun talking about cars, and Tom, rest in peace. If you know Car Talk, you know what I'm talking about. And then uh, we move into only a game and uh, away with words. I tune out during those. Those aren't my favorite. I typically run into the house at that point and try to catch this old house and ask this old house. And when I come back to the radio, uh, I, I come back after that uh, to the radio to listen to what I wanted to listen to all along, which was This American Life. This American Life is a, a journalistic storytelling uh, a radio show. And in my opinion, it's some of the most compelling storytelling that, that there is. And so recently I was listening to This American Life, and uh, they were replaying an old episode about knowing enough about something to be dangerous. Knowing enough about something to be dangerous. And that phrase has stuck with me since I graduated college. Because when I graduated college, I had a Bachelor's of Arts in Biblical Studies. And I thought, you know what? I know a lot of stuff. And so... I wanted to know just how much I knew, and so I went to one of my professors that I particularly admired and respected, and he had mentored me, and I, I asked him, I said, how much do I really know now that I have this piece of paper? And he said, you know enough to be dangerous. And while uh, that stung a little bit, having spent some years in college and paying for that college, it stung, but it was absolutely the truth. And so this whole show, this whole radio program was about having just enough information to kind of build a whole web of thought around a little bit of information. And the best part of the show was about adults that had been told or uh, heard something when they were a child or misheard something when they were a child, and they brought that with them into adulthood. Something that they heard as a child, and they've taken it with them into adulthood. One guy had heard about how TV ratings were determined when he was around 11 or 12, and he overheard somebody talking about the Nielsen families. And he thought it was strange that they would only ask families with the last name of Nielsen to rate TV programs. But in his tween brain, he had kind of rationalized and figured, you know, there's probably enough Nielsens out there that if they got enough of them, it'd be a good, you know, portion of the, the population as a whole. And so he believed that grown up. And so fast forward 20 years and now he's in his 30s and he's talking with a buddy of his and his buddy says in conversation that his parents were selected to be a part of the Nielsen families. And our friend says, isn't it weird that they only pick people with the, wait a second, his buddy's parents didn't have the last name of Nielsen and there's a long awkward pause and during that long awkward pause our friend realizes that that's not quite how it works. And what he's believed for the majority of his life was based on a little bit of information that he misheard when he was 12 years old. 
And so a story after story of adults who had believed something that was built on a misperception or mishearing or only a little bit of the truth. And I can totally see how this happens. I absolutely can because I remember being told as a child that cows on a hillside had two legs that were shorter than the other two so that they could stand up straight. Or maybe we've been told that angels in heaven are bowling and that's what creates thunder. Or two clouds bumping into each other creates thunder. We're told these things. My own childhood was in part ruined by the misinformation that I was given regarding the ice cream truck. I was told that if the ice cream truck was playing music, that the ice cream truck was out of ice cream. (laughs) Yes. Not cool. That was not cool, Dad. But I have to admit, I do the same thing. Emma's not in here right now, so I can say this, but I often tell my daughter Emma that her ice ice cream cone is about to fall over and that I need to push it down for her. And so I'll grab the ice cream cone, take a huge bite off the top, make it appear as though I'm pushing the ice cream further down into the cone. We do this stuff. And we don't always give the full truth after the fact. And in part, that's kind of where we find ourselves this morning. We find ourselves with some misinformation that we might still be carrying with us from a child, being a child. And so we're going to quickly look at some of the details of our text this morning and possibly write some of the misperceptions or misinformation before we go any further. So we're going to start with a song that we all know around this time of year, and that, particularly in regards to this text, and that is We Three Kings, right? We Three Kings. So we'll start with the number three. We don't know from the text that there are three kings, only that there are more than one because it's plural. And we typically... Uh, assign three kings to the story because there are three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so we think, hey, there should be three kings, right? There could have been 300. We don't know. And chances are, even if there were three or four or five, they probably would have had quite the entourage that traveled with them because they were well-respected people in the Gentile world. Now, the song also calls them, we three kings, right? Well, the text doesn't say that at all. We can be pretty certain that they are not kings because they are specifically called magi or wise men. And magi are a known people in the first century, dating all the way back into the Old Testament to the time of Daniel. Magi were skilled in astronomy and astrology. And they saw those two things as one, which we know astronomy and astrology are two very, very different things. But in the first century, they were linked together. And so the Magi had studied astronomy and astrology. They had studied the stars and the messages that the stars had for us. And so the opinion of of the Magi in the Gentile world was that they were smart guys. These were wise men. Now, the same was not true in the Jewish world. The Magi were not seen as wise men. They were seen as idolaters. They were seen as people who sought answers outside of the Creator, They looked to the stars and to their own calculations rather than to God. The Magi were Gentiles who studied the stars and interpreted them. And for Israel, that was by and large despised. Now, the next next misperception doesn't so much come from the song We Three Kings, but rather uh, every nativity set we've ever seen. When you guys go home today, I'm gonna, chances are you probably still have your Christmas decorations up. We have, this, we have our tree still up. And I bet most of you have somewhere in your home a nativity. 
And in that nativity, you have three guys, probably with crowns and, and a gift. And those are our three wise men. And they're there at Jesus' birth. But in our text this morning, we see that the Magi come to a house where the child was. And the word child here is referring to a toddler, not necessarily an infant. And the word house is referring to where Mary and Joseph lived in Bethlehem. The Magi came from the east, and most scholars agree that they came from Babylon, so current day Iraq or Iran. They have a long way to go to get to Bethlehem. They are, so, long story short, they arrive on the scene. They arrive to the party a little bit late. Most likely, Jesus is almost nearing two years of age at this point. And we know this because when Herod asks the Magi when this baby was born and he finds out, he has all children two years old and younger killed in Bethlehem in hopes to get rid of the baby Jesus. So when you go home today and you look at your nativity, maybe you just take the three wise men and just kind of scoot them a little bit further away if not into the next room, and they'll get there eventually. (laughs) So enough about the misperceptions. Now that we have kind of a better handle on these guys, what difference does it make? Why do we care about these magi coming to the baby king? Well, I mentioned this earlier, but the fact that the magi were looked down upon among the Israelites, that's important for us this morning. Because I I think we typically hold to the idea that the magi are good guys, I'm not saying they're not good guys, but we typically hold to the idea that these are good guys. These are guys that were following God. They were doing God's will. They were following the star. They were going to worship God. We don't typically hold to the idea that they were seen as idolaters and magicians and people who were looking outside of God for answers because that doesn't fit with our nice, neat nativity. But here we have Matthew, the gospel writer, the first gospel that we come to. And he gives us the account of Jesus' birth and Jesus' early years, and he mentions the Magi, to which Matthew's readers in the Jewish world would have been taken back a little bit. Magi? They don't belong there. So, the Magi aren't as welcomed as we like to think. And Matthew paints this picture of these Gentiles, these idolaters, these people that look to the stars for answers, coming to a toddler king to offer the respect and to worship him. And this is crucial for us this morning because if Jesus is in some sense the king of the Jews, as the Magi are claiming, then that means that his rule isn't limited to just the Jewish people. We have a king that's come for us. We have a king that's come for everyone, for Jews, for Gentiles, for Magi, for Herod, for Hoosiers, for everybody. This little king that has come, has come to restore. This king has come to redeem. This little king has come to save. This little king has come as God in flesh for everyone, everywhere. A chapter earlier than the text that we read in Matthew chapter 1, we see a long list of names. And it's kind of tough to look at because it's like, I really have to read through this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, was the father of Jacob, was the father of Judah, and on and on and on it goes. And we think, whew, that's the Bible. But if we scratch the surface a little bit and we look a little deeper, we see a genealogy, a family tree that takes us up to Jesus. And in that family tree, we see Gentiles, which is important. 
Jesus comes as king of the Jews, but more importantly, he's king for the Jews, and he's king for us. Matthew begins the gospel with this genealogy, a list of of people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And the list includes Gentiles. Then he introduces us to the Magi, to these other Gentiles who are proclaiming Jesus as king of the Jews. The Magi were outsiders to the Jewish faith, and they bring these gifts for this little king. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, we see something really, really similar to the beginning. We see soldiers at the end of Matthew's gospel. And these soldiers are the first Gentiles since the Magi to call Jesus king of the Jews. But the crown that they give him is made of thorns, and the throne that they give him is a cross. And instead of a star at the end of Matthew's gospel, it's darkness. And out of that darkness, there's one Gentile voice that says, Surely this is the Son of God. And so Matthew begins his gospel very much in the same way that he ends his gospel. With a king who is king to all. N.T. Wright tells us that Matthew is inviting us to listen to the whole story. The whole story from beginning to end. To listen and think about what it meant for Jesus to be the true king of the Jews. And when we recognize that, we come to that king by whatever route we can with the best gifts that we can find, much like the Magi. Now, I would say that there are three kings in our story, but not the three kings that we typically think of. Not the three kings of our nativity. Two of them are outright named in our text this morning. Jesus is one of them, and King Herod is the other. Now, there's a third king that's not mentioned in our text, but is mentioned in other texts that we've looked at since November, and that's Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome, the emperor that sent out the decree that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in the first place. And so I would say that our story, this Christmas story that we've been looking at since November, is full of tension. It has a lot of tension in it, particularly political tension, because there are three kings mixed in here. Christmas is all about a king coming to this world, but he came into a kingdom that had a throne that was already occupied. Verse 1 of our text introduces us to King Herod, and he was known as Herod the Great, which is a nickname that he most likely gave himself, which how many of us, we would like to do that, right? But he also had another nickname that he had given himself that he was also known by in the Gentile and the Roman world, and that was the king of the Jews. And in verse 2, We see the Magi asking about another king of the Jews, not this Herod. Matthew gives us the image of the Magi wandering around Jerusalem, asking everybody they can find, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the king of the Jews? Have you seen the king of the Jews? Where is this king? They did this all over Jerusalem except one place, and that was Herod's palace. Herod has to seek them out and bring them into Jerusalem his palace. And I can only imagine the interaction of that conversation, what that would have looked like, the awkwardness of that conversation. Herod, knowing what the Magi are going around asking, and he brings them into his palace, and he probably says, uh, who are you all? Who are you all? And the Magi might say, well, we're Magi from a far off country. Well, who are you looking for? Why are you here? We're looking for the king of the Jews. To which Herod might have said, well, I should have introduced myself because my name's Herod. King Herod. Herod, king of the Jews. To which the Magi might have thought, this is awkward. 
Because, see, we're looking for a younger, more powerful king of the Jews. We saw this star. He's probably little. Do you know where he's at? Maybe you're feeling a little bit bad for Herod at this point, but don't. Because Herod's pretty much the worst ever. He really is. Herod's pretty bad. How bad is he, right? Herod is so bad that he killed his wife. Scripture tells us that he killed his favorite wife, so you can take that however you like. He killed his wife, he killed his mother-in-law, he killed his brother-in-law, and we know that he killed at least three of his sons because he was so scared that they were scheming for his throne. Herod was so jealous that when he learned that he was about to die, he rounded up all the leaders of Jerusalem, had them thrown into prison. And he declared that when he died, he wanted all of those leaders killed as well so that there would be weeping and mourning in the streets. Not necessarily weeping and mourning for him, but weeping and mourning nonetheless. And then you don't forget the whole baby thing. He's threatened by a baby who's being called the king of the Jews, and he has all two-year-olds and under killed in Bethlehem. Now, as crazy and jealous and cruel as Herod was, he wasn't crazy enough to do anything to the Magi. Because you think, this guy's pretty crazy. If these guys walk in and they're saying, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews and it's not you, he might kill them. But he's not that crazy. Because the Magi are from a far off country and that might provoke a war. And Herod wasn't, he was called a king, but he really worked under Caesar and he didn't want to cause any trouble. He didn't want to stir up anything that might get him in trouble from Caesar, from Rome. So he didn't touch the Magi, but he could do something about this little king. And this is where Herod has a decision to make. Because after this whole kind of awkward interaction that he might have had with the Magi, he has a critical decision to make, and it's the same decision that every single one of us have to make in this life as well. Was Herod going to retain his starring role in his own story? Was he going to retain his own kingdom, his own kingship? Or would he recognize that this infant was born God in flesh to be king for everyone? Was Herod going to sit on his throne and stubbornly hold on to his crown? Or was he going to do what the Magi did and bow down before this little king and recognize him as Lord? Because he had that chance. He had the chance to go with the Magi to worship the king. And what did Herod do? He chose to hold on to his crown. And it was all for naught. He died a few years after Jesus was born. And how much of his kingdom, how much of his throne, how much of his wealth, and how much of his power did he get to take with him? None of it. We bring nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can take nothing out of this world. We try to hold on, and we try to take stuff with us, but it doesn't work. I mean, the Egyptians tried that, right? And then thousands and thousands of years later, British archaeologists walk into Tutankhamun's room and all of his toys are still there. None of them have been touched, right? One last thought. These magi, however many of them there were, brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which are pretty strange gifts for a little kid, quite honestly. Myrrh was a gooey, sticky substance that they used for burial. Sounds like a perfect gift for a toddler, right? Which makes me wonder if maybe these magi were bachelors. 
thinking like, hey, let's get that for the baby. That sounds like something they'll like. And Mary, I can imagine her saying, thank you guys so much. We know what gold is. Frankincense is basically tree sap that they would burn in the temple to, to symbolize prayers being lifted up to God. And then, like as I, as I mentioned, myrrh was an embalming agent, a resin from a bush. Some say that these gifts are symbolic of who Jesus was. That gold represents his kingship, him being king. That frankincense represents his deity because they used it in the temple. And myrrh being symbolic or foreshadowing his death. But regardless of what they represent, they're gifts. Gifts that won't last. Most scholars believe that Mary and Joseph actually sold those gifts to fund their escape to Egypt and to fund the time that they hid there. So they were gifts, and gifts don't last. Not these gifts, at least. It seems to me that the greatest gift the Magi gave to this little king was the gift of themselves. Gentiles from far away, traveling months through all kinds of harsh conditions, bringing gifts and hopes that they might get a chance to honor and worship this king that they've heard about. The thing that's interesting to me is these men, these magi who studied the stars, had probably heard about this king, and one of the things that they might have heard was this is a king to whom even the stars are said to bow down to. That would be an impressive sight for someone who thought so highly of the stars. But the Magi give themselves, and it's with that thought in mind that the greatest gift we can give is the gift of ourselves that we come together this morning to the table. As we're reminded of the gift that we've been given in the little King Jesus who came and gave his greatest gift, the gift of himself. Amen.